welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, continues in his series on the letters to the churches in Revelation. If you want to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find all of that on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. you ever tasted forgiveness like that you know what it feels like to be set free set free from yourself set free from your mistakes we began a new series last week if you weren't here entitled can you hear me taken from the book of revelation and the series is subtitled letters from God it refers to the letters to the seven churches that Jesus wrote through John in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So if you were hoping I was going to explain to you all of the imagery in Revelation, you are going to be disappointed because I'm only going to deal with these seven letters. Today's title is God's letter to the suffering. Take out your message guide if you haven't already. The outline's on the front two panels, as you know if you're a regular here. The theme verse taken from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Everyone, the, the, the whole verse starts out with yes, and, but everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might suffer a little persecution. Is that what it says? Does yours say that down? Wait a minute. Well, maybe some people, right? Does it say a few people maybe? Who does it say? Does that include you? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what's the next word? Will Will suffer persecution. Do you believe that? Well, what if you're not suffering any persecution? Then you must not be living that kind of life. That's the condition. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, I'll just summarize, tells us that this revelation, the whole book, including these first few chapters, was, was actually spoken by Jesus to disciple, later apostle John. A disciple is a learner. An apostle is a speaker or a deliverer of, deliverer, a representative of information. On the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea still exists today, Revelation 1.9. But uniquely, this letter was delivered to John. Most are inspired by the Spirit. But this letter, the Scripture says, was delivered to John by an angel. Revelation 1.3, I will read you this verse. For those of you especially that weren't here last year, because there's another thing unique about this particular book of the Bible, God blesses 
the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This is the only book of the Bible that expressly says you receive blessing from God for reading and for hearing. So I urge you, read not only the chapters I'll deal with, but the whole book. Now, in Revelation, and particularly in these two chapters, Jesus is warning these seven specific churches about coming destruction. Now, this destruction occurred historically in what year? 70 A.D. Bring that guy up here to the front. He'll be my number one pupil. It occurred in 70 A.D. when Roman general, whom? Uh-oh, back there. Where's my guy? <laughs> Titus. Oh, somebody's got it. Roman emperor, Rome, I mean, Roman general Titus destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Anybody been to Jerusalem? Isn't there a city standing? Is it the city that the Jews built? No, it's not. The city that's standing, even the old city of Jerusalem, was built by Suleiman, a, a Turk. Suleiman the Magnificent, he was known as. Now, when Titus attacked the city, he actually killed, according to Josephus the historian, 1.1 million people. Well, how so many? Well, because it was Passover. And now there's only a few um, entrances into the city, and there were then. So the people came in for this religious festival from all over the land, and they were not allowed to leave. So the gates were shut, the doors were shut, and then they were murdered by soldiers. So 1.1 million murdered and 97,000 enslaved. You can find a description in Matthew 24. You say, well, I thought this was about the end time. It's about both. It's a description of the destruction of 70 AD, and it also foreshadows the devastation at the time of Jesus' return in the second coming. Now, in these letters, Jesus, through John, exposed the errors, the sin, the weaknesses, as well as the strengths of these congregations who were located in what was then called Asia Minor. That was a Roman province. Today, it is seated in the country of what? Turkey. Specifically, western Turkey, Anatolia. And these churches were encouraged in a number of ways, but in particular, to persevere through suffering by demonstrating authentic faith. So today's message is directed to the church in Smyrna, not Georgia. And somebody said, there's one in South Carolina too. I didn't know that. But this is the one in Asia Minor. And we begin at verse 8 in chapter 2. 
write the letter to the angel. Is this a winged spiritual creature? Who's the angel? Messenger. The word angel actually means messenger. And the messenger of the church was the leader of the church. May have been a pastor, may have been an elder. But it's saying, write this to the the leader of the church. Of the church in Smyrna. The Greek word that's translated Smyrna is literally bitter. And it was used in the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. To translate the Hebrew word for myrrh. And you, you know what myrrh is? How many of you have those essential oils made of myrrh? What, is, what does it do for you, Mindy? It makes you beautiful. I can rub that stuff all over. I can take a bath in it and won't, it won't make me beautiful. But anyway, myrrh is, is made from resin, from a plant, and it's used as a perfume for the living, Matthew 2, 11, but also for what? Anointing the dead, Jesus, John 19. And myrrh is produced by crushing this fragrant plant. So we're going to see in this passage what happens when the church at Smyrna is crushed by persecution. What comes out? Did you know that when you are under pressure, what comes out is the real you? Some of us say, oh, well, that wasn't like me. I just had this. No, no, no. It's just that usually in in good circumstances, you can kind of control yourself a little better. You can sort of cover the bad, hide who you really are. But under pressure, under stress, it doesn't, stress doesn't alter you. Pressure doesn't change you. What does it do? It reveals who you are. And sometimes we don't even know who we are. So we need to take a look at what is on display. So we're going to see, too, what happened in the church at Smyrna under pressure. Now, Smyrna was a seaport city about 50 miles north of Ephesus, the second largest city in Asia Minor after Ephesus, and it had a population of approximately 200,000. It was regarded as the most beautiful city in Asia Minor. It exists today as a Turkish city of Izmir with a population of about 4 million. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us about how this church was founded. So it's assumed that it was established by Paul or his followers during his third missionary journey into Ephesus. And you can find that in Acts chapter 19. The the city of Ephesus was a strong ally with Rome. And because of that, the city was a center for emperor worship. We we, uh, mentioned that last week in terms of Ephesus. But this, this city was even more committed to emperor worship. And that's what resulted in persecution for the Christians. It also caused some to be put to death because, see, Christians were required or every citizen was required 
once a year to offer a sacrifice of incense and declare Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians wouldn't do it. And so they would be punished or put to death. Now, as we begin in this greeting, I want to just mention last week's soul training, remember, was to hear, ask, hear, and record how God addressed you. Now, who did that? I got a few. All right, now, I had more hands last week. Let me ask you, humbly, I mean this humbly, walk with me in this. You know, I don't think any of us come to church to just gather some more information or to learn some new fun facts. We need to learn how to walk with Christ. And an important element is the ability to hear God speak personally and individually. It takes practice. It can be a little threatening. Sometimes you don't hear anything because we have all kinds of things blocking. We doubt it. We're guilty. We have all sorts of things that, that disallow us to hear. But let me urge you, please walk with me. Get a message guide. We gave them out last week in the program. They're on the coffee uh, uh, counters. They're also at the information desk. Um, there's information about it on the back of the message guide, the soul training each week, brookwoodchurch.org slash hearing God. But it's important to discover the way God addresses you. That's the first assignment. And it might be your name, but most people that have, I've talked to about it have some more personal way that God speaks to them. God doesn't call me by my name. Now, I told you that I didn't believe God spoke at all. I thought it was only read the Bible. I learned years ago God will speak. And it came at a time where our church was considering this um, mission endeavor in India. And we were going to add more than a million dollars to a budget that we didn't make the year before. And so in order to do it, we had to know it was from God. Otherwise, it could have had serious financial consequences in our church. And so our leadership uh, group, our advisory team found a man that would, would help. He would kind of give instruction in how to hear from God. And as I told you, I, I was really skeptical. I just knew we had to do it or it could be disastrous for our church. We needed to know, yes, this is God. This isn't some display of power or ego or anything like that. It has to be a call from God or it wouldn't work. It wouldn't happen. So, you know, I thought this guy was going to send us out in the woods and you'd be out in the woods for three hours, you know, and I thought it was going to be actually miserable. But, but I knew that we needed to hear from God. And I believed from the scripture that God spoke. And that's why on that handout, I listed a lot of verses, many more that I didn't list just for space. You know, some of us were intimidated of going, but everyone went and we learned that God speaks and he speaks individually and he speaks personally and he speaks with awareness of who we are. 
And God calls me his son. That's what he calls me. And you know why? You know why God calls me his son? I think. Because I have never experienced a close or even a positive relationship with my earthly father. And so God tells me, you belong to me. You're my son. And often he says, I'm proud of you. He may not give me detailed instruction about other things. He always tells me who I am to him. And it's important for us. Because this is, a, this is a core issue of identity for us. And if you don't know who you are, it can lead to many mistakes. And it can lead to much misdirection. You agree with that? So we have to learn how to listen and being able to hear. It's a process. It's a practice. You know, you, you, you know your spouse's voice, but you didn't the first time you talked to her or him. And we learn the voice of God and we learn how it sounds. We learn the weight, the tone, the, the intent, the subject. You see what I'm saying? I'll promise you it can happen. But will you walk with me? Will you, church, walk with me in this? Let me see. Let me see some hands. I'm taking a, a picture of who's... What's that word called? I had that kind of memory. Not photographic. Idetic, idonic, or something idiotic. Um, <laughs> But right, next week I'm going to ask you to raise them again. But I do, I'm being funny, but I mean humbly. Please walk with me in this. What happens if we, this many people, learn to hear from God and follow what we hear? Our culture is crying out for leadership, spiritual leadership. Continue, verse 8. This is the message from the one who is the first and last, who was dead but is now alive. Now, this reference to Jesus' identity actually comes out of chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And what you see is that part of what John saw or heard from Jesus is mentioned in an appropriate letter to each of the other seven. And so this actual quote is from verses 17 and 18 but it's out of the passage, uh, the larger passage in chapter 1. Now, it was customary in ancient letters for the writer to identify himself at the beginning. We know Paul signed some at the end, but it was very typical for the writer to identify himself at the beginning, and that's what's happening here. The first and the last is an Old Testament title for God. Isaiah 41, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 48. And so... Jesus is affirming that he is God and that he is not limited by time, that he was in existence before creation and he will live long after creation is gone. The phrase, who was dead but is now alive, refers to Jesus 
living as a human, which was necessary so that he could die, and he died sacrificially for our sins, and then being resurrected to an unending life. And if you're a persecuted people, as these people in Smyrna were, can you understand how that particular identity of Jesus was comforting? Because these were people who were persecuted. These were people who were dying for their faith. Some dying very young. So look how comforting it was for Jesus to say, I was here before this world was made. I'll be here when it's gone. I've experienced suffering and death and I've overcome it. And you will too. In this letter, Jesus offers also an affirmation. Verse 9. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, this church faced intense pressure because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Because remember, Every year, annually, they had to burn some incense. Probably didn't even cost that much. But they had to say, Caesar is Lord. In other words, Caesar is divine. He's a God. And the Christians refused. So they were persecuted by Rome, but they were also attacked by other citizens of Smyrna. Don't think that all this piling on has just begun. There's something in people that likes to torment, to, to isolate, to attack. And these folks were suffering because of Rome and because of their neighbors. Now, their refusal to worship the emperor resulted in not only imprisonment, but also because they didn't bow to the Caesar, to the Roman emperor, they would have their possessions confiscated. And the other people in town who were readily acknowledging Caesar is God, they wouldn't employ the Christians. They didn't want to be anywhere near these people who were being persecuted by Rome. So they weren't employing them. Plus, they weren't allowed admission into the guilds so they couldn't open shops. So they suffered not only physically, but also financially. And they were experiencing extreme poverty. Not only did they not worship the emperor, they also didn't worship any of the other Greek gods. Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, Escopios or Cybele, who was the protector, the local goddess. See, people that don't have any standards, they'll worship anybody you tell them to. They worship the Caesar, they'd worship all the Greek gods and goddesses. Anybody you want, just leave me alone. Not the Christians. Not the Christians. And because they worshipped an invisible God, these believers were denounced as atheists. 
And they were rejected from not only Smyrna's business, but also Smyrna's social life, which revolved around worship of the Caesar and worship of the Greek idols. You ever felt left out because of your convictions? You say, well, this this letter doesn't, doesn't apply to me. Are you saying our culture doesn't have any idols? You ever been excluded from a business opportunity because of your rigid integrity? You ever known anyone who didn't want to hire you and certainly not partner with you because they knew you wouldn't hedge the numbers or you would entertain the clients at the strip club or you would do something else illegal in the way you reported your taxes? You ever missed out on anything because of that? You ever been left off an invitation list because you refused to accept immorality? How are you treated when you refuse to worship cultural idols? It's amazing to me how people are transitioning so fast on moral issues. Either they don't have any convictions or they don't have any courage to stand in those convictions. You may have friends right now who hold certain opinions and you better not disagree or you get left off the invitation list or you get attacked at the dinner table. So what do you do? Are you silent? Could be that you don't hold the opinions of the favored politician or political party. You know what, folks? We are not Republicans. And we are not Democrats. We are children of God who vote accordingly. So... Yeah, that, that's paltry. I hear that paltry. But think about it. You're called to a purpose and a function in this culture. Jesus used two idioms for what we're supposed to do. What are they? You're supposed to be two things. Who said it? Salt and light. Salt retards spoilage. It also seasons. Light exposes what's there and provides guidance. How much of that are you doing? Well, well, I don't want to get in an argument. Well, you can be humble, but you can't be silent. This culture of ours is sliding downhill, and we're supposed to be the salt that retards it, and we're supposed to be the light that points a different way. But if we're too scared that our friends might be uncomfortable with us, we're neither salt nor light, nor are we persecuted. I'm not saying pick fights, and I'm not saying be arrogant. I'm saying humbly state biblical convictions. And you will strengthen people who are full of fear and lacking in courage 
continue in, on verse 9. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. See, in Smyrna, the Jewish religion was accepted by Rome. They weren't required to offer the sacrifice or declare that Caesar is Lord or Caesar is God. But you know what they did? Instead of just benefiting from the past, they then turned their freedom to attack the Christians even more and to expose them to more Roman persecution. You know, we, piling on is not new. And see, Jesus is saying that the Jews who rejected him were guilty of blasphemy, speaking evil against God. And in their harsh treatment of Christians and, their, and opposing Jesus, they were following Satan as much as idol worshipers. See, Christianity wasn't supposed to be a separate religion. Christianity was a name given at Antioch, but this was just the Messiah that the Jews were taught to expect, and now he's come. So it wasn't supposed to be a separate religion at all. In the beginning, it was called the way, the people who recognized Jesus. But there wasn't supposed to be Jews over here, Christians over there, because it was all supposed to be from the revelation of God and the prof prophecy of God. One faith under God. In addition, interestingly, Jesus accused Christians, I mean, Jews accused Christians of cannibalism. You know why? Cannibalism. Think about it. Why? And whenever you eat my body and drink my blood, the Lord's Supper. Now, isn't that like our culture? They hear one little bit of, one little comment completely out of context, and they make it the most extreme attack possible. So Christians were considered cannibal. They were cannibals. They also were accused of immorality because the Christians exchanged a holy kiss as a greeting. Now, that's all it was, and you can find Paul refers to it at least four different times. But they said, oh, they're immoral too. They were also accused of breaking up homes because sometimes one spouse converted and the other one did not. So there was all this unfair attack that was leveled at Christians by the Jews and the Gentiles. See, any religion that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as God's son is acting contrary to God's will and there is no middle ground. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Despite their suffering and their material poverty, Jesus referred to these people as rich. Why would he do that? What had they received? They'd received the infinitely priceless gift of eternal life and holiness for righteous living. You know what? Have you realized some who have lived another way, 
What a wonderful thing it is to go to bed at night with a clear conscience. Walking in holiness. You're not scared about what anybody's going to say about you. What they've learned about you. What they'll accuse you of. You just get to sleep a restful, the restful sleep of a person with a clear conscience. And that comes from pursuing Christ and holiness. And comfort from the Spirit. And peace also from the Holy Spirit. But how do we see ourselves? How do you see yourself today? You may be struggling. You may be unemployed. You may be underemployed. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as poor or rich? As blessed or cursed? As a victim of circumstances or a victor through Christ. Lots of people like victims. And oh, we love to wallow in that, don't we? Jesus has no place for victims because he has given us such riches that we are victors even if we struggle physically through this whole life which is short anyway. In this letter also, Jesus issues a challenge. Verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. Some of these believers would be imprisoned as traitors of Rome. But it wouldn't last long, although this word, this 10 might be a literal number that it actually was 10 24-hour days, but, it, but sometimes in the Scripture the word, the number 10 is used as just a brief period. But Jesus knew what his people were facing and he would, would enable them to endure it. Here's a question for you. If suffering was around the corner ahead of you, would you want to know or not know. Which one, David? <laughs> you better come up here close to me. <laughs> See, here's the thing. If we are living kind of as weak victims, we don't want to know. We don't want to know. If we know we're victorious and we're empowered by the Spirit, we want to know because we have more time to pray and fast and prepare for what's coming. But how do we live? Are we afraid of everything that might be around the corner? As believers, we're endowed with strength. We're endowed with hope. We are gifted with peace. So why do we live so weakly? As though we're subject to whatever the culture presents to us. We are overcomers. We don't live under circumstances. We rise above circumstances in Christ. And every one of us has that ability. Not because I'm so strong, but because the one within me is so mighty. 
By successfully enduring this trial, the believers would prove the reality of their faith. And they would be strengthened. And they would prove again that Satan cannot destroy genuine faith. If you're scared of demons or scared of Satan, I mean, I believe in demons. Demons can't conquer you. You have to yield yourself to their control. See, it's always been Satan's attack. I mean, Satan's intent to attack God's children and to attempt to embarrass God with us, to humiliate God through our weakness and his attempt to destroy their faith. He will never succeed. See, here's the point. If we are born again believers, what that means is you've been changed, you've been transformed, You've been reworked. You can't deny Christ even under pressure. Because it's now your identity. It happened to you. That'd be like me denying, no, I don't have any children. It's a reality. You understand what I'm saying? You can't deny it even if it causes you to be mistreated. It's who you are. Now you can go to church and have some information about Jesus and under pressure walk away from that. And many do. And you can compromise some information that you have grasped. That's not being born again. Being born again consumes you. It changes who you are. You cannot deny it. You cannot walk away from it. Hakeem, your whole family, you can't deny who you are, can you? You still love people that disagree with you. You can't deny who you are. And God's Spirit strengthens us, sustains us, comforts us, even in the midst of that suffering and trial. So under pressure, do we gripe and complain? Or do we seek God who sustains us? See, if we're, if we're walking with Christ, when troubles come, we can say, This isn't pleasant, but God is with me. It doesn't control me, and it'll be work to conform me to Christ. Does that sound like, oh, nobody can do that? Do you think that? Every one of us can live that way. Every one of us can live that way. In this letter, Jesus promises rewards. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. See, the reward for faithfulness, Jesus didn't criticize this church anywhere. You've seen that. So now he's telling them what will happen if they remain faithful. I started with this and I'm returning to it. Perseverance in the midst of suffering proves 
the genuineness of faith. Now, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to say, well, don't start defending yourself. Here's what you need to do. If you say, you know what? I'm not sure my faith is real. Then cast yourself on Christ. Don't defend your behavior, your weakness, your mistakes. Cast yourself on Christ. And verse 11 says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. This phrase closes all seven letters. And it stresses our need to hear and obey what God says individually because every relationship implies personal communication and also through the Scripture. Sometimes it's God uses the Bible and applies it personally. Sometimes he speaks to you directly. Does this sound foreign to you? Even if it does, please walk with me. It hasn't been that many years that I've disbelieved this. Please, will you try? Let me see your hand. You'll try. It may take some time. Please get a card Get the inserts, they're on the desk, they're online, and learn to hear what God wants to say to you personally. Verse 11, whoever is victorious, some translations say overcomers, it refers to all Christians, will not be harmed by the second death. You know what? Persecuted believers may suffer the first physical death, and all of us will ultimately suffer at least the first death unless Christ returns before that. But in Christ, you will never experience the second death, that permanent separation from God. And you will be rewarded by God upon reaching heaven. Are you experiencing difficulties? If you're not today, you will be soon. All of us do. But do we know how to seek Christ for comfort? And do we find encouragement, even peace, in knowing that reward awaits us in heaven? Counselors will be here. Our soul training is affirmation for next week. So if you didn't do last week, let me urge you to do the greeting. That won't take a long time. And then ask this question. God, what pleases you about me? Or you can ask it this way. God, when you look at me, what brings you joy? You say, well, how would God find joy in me? Well, I have two little grandsons and just watching them, holding them, brings me tremendous joy. They don't give me any new information or investment advice or any, anything helpful, but do you know what I'm saying? Just looking at them, just watching them, just having them reach for me brings tremendous joy. My grandson, about a year ago, when he was beginning to speak, I would call him Sweetheart, my older one who's now th- just turned three, and he said, he said to his mama, Pop Pop called me sweetheart. He heard it 
it registered. What does God call you? And what does he see in you that brings him joy? We need to know that. Counselors will be here to pray with you, to talk with you, to anoint you with oil. Spend as long as you need. Father, we thank you for this word. Help us to care most about what you think of us than what anyone around us thinks. Use our lives, Lord. May we serve you, Lord, as we look forward to an eternal reward. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 in order to get in contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.